pharmaceutical companies came in hot and heavy because we wanted to open up markets in Canada to importation of yeah, drugs, right? That's great. They were blasting us on on TV, Wall Street going after us all that's, over the that's place. Gonna, that's a huge deal because you can usually bring down the cost of pharmaceuticals yeah, by cost. going going to Canada. Um, but but basically, they they attacked us, and and then every single member of the Florida House voted for that bill. Wow. After, being so after they attacked you, everyone just went and did it. Yeah, I kind of say it's like a Viking shield wall, right? If you attack us when we're doing something right, we're going to close ranks. The Democrats and, and Republicans. Everybody. That's such an inspiring story. It's not the kind of thing you hear about in the press. Oh, That's right. really cool. I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. Really excited to have Florida Speaker of the House, Chris Sprouls, with us here today. Mr. Speaker, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be with you. It's, uh, it's awesome to catch up with you. I'm a huge fan, as you know, of the Florida legislature. This is one of the most innovative legislatures in the country. You're the Speaker of the House. The way it works there is you get to be Speaker for two years and you have to retire, right? That's it. That's it. Forced retirement. You know, we've got eight-year term limits as well. So, you know, I always tell people the second you get into the Florida House, like the clock is running. So and you, you, and you get to be a representative for six years, Speaker for the last two if you did really well. That's right. And, and, then, you're, and then you're done. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and what did you do before you were Speaker of the House? I was a gang and homicide prosecutor. Uh, and as I'd like to tell people, it's a great training for politics. You know, gang and homicide, very similar. Um, but I was a gang and homicide prosecutor for seven years, uh, just uh, just west of Tampa Bay in Pinellas and Pasco County. What inspired you to get involved as a representative? Where, where are you involved in this yeah. political stuff? I think it started for me because my parents talked about politics at the dinner table a lot. So I think that's kind of piqued my interest. But I, recur I recall being in a courtroom one day and, you know, I'm in this courtroom where you're sending people to prison for decades, you know, not months or weeks. For, S for serious stuff. Serious stuff. And I just think to myself, you know, I loved my job. I loved what I was doing, but there's no way to get ahead of a problem. Like you're at the end of the road if someone's going to prison for 30 years. The only way to get ahead of it is on, on the public policy front. And that's what I decided to run. So is criminal justice one of the areas that you, you, you care a lot about then? A ton. Uh, although when I got to the legislature, I was really worried that they were going to put me on like the lawyer committees, you know, and toss me out. You don't, and, you don't just want to be criminal justice. Yeah, I didn't want to just be criminal justice. So I actually asked for health care, not really knowing a ton about health care at the time. Uh, but I ended up spending my first two years predominantly in the healthcare policy world. Tell us a little bit about that. What's going on with healthcare? This is a very fraught issue in our society. There's extremes on both sides. Like, what what, what are you trying to do when you're yeah. working on healthcare? But we're trying to have it, you know, patient patient centered, right? There's a a, a book written called uh, uh, by Eric Topol about the patient experience, right? Being being patient centered, you know, policies. So what we did in in Tallahassee was first we had you know repealing of you know massive government regulations like CON, which created monopolies for hospitals. CON spells CON stands for Certificate of Need, right? Which is just funny. This that spells CON. Yeah, exactly, right. And, yeah. and people were, you know, in the community, like, what's that? Why does it matter? I said, well, it's a monopoly for a business. Yeah. So basically, basically, if you want to compete with another hospital system, you have to get a certificate that says you're needed. So hospitals could charge as much as they want and then say, no, nothing, no one else is needed to compete with me. Exactly. And guess who doesn't want that, right? The hospital, the incumbent hospital who's there. So they're fighting a tooth and nail legally, politically. They're best friends with the people giving out those certificates. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I filed those bills to get rid of that when I, when I was a freshman. So there's no more member. con in Florida. No, we got rid of it. We got rid of it. We also, uh, you know, have now a robust, robust telehealth, which was a huge deal for us during the pandemic, where patients can get on, talk to a doctor, whether they're in-state or out-of-state, get their medical care, which is faster and cheaper. Uh, That's also a crony one to tr people try to stop, right? They don't want the competition from telehealth. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, at one point, we asked the question, like, is there something different between the, the human body, between the border of Florida and Georgia? You know, of course not, right? So, like, why do we care wh where the doctor is? Yeah. It's all about the patient. And then I think, lastly, like, a huge another area for us was been, you know, healthcare transparency, both in quality and price. 
price. So we did an all player all player claims database, which I think is the biggest in the country, where we said let's get to, let's tell the patient as granular as possible how much their surgery or procedure is going to cost. Is that data out there now? People, it is. Are, yeah. are people are people using it? Is it easy to use or what's what's yeah, the situation? So I think that they're they're using it when they know about it. Like like anything else in government, we do a bad job of promoting the good things that we do and then the access to the information. So I think the hope there is that the private marketplace will come in and capture and take. Is the, the idea data. is there's different payers that might use these to compete and get better prices for the for the payers themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And, and get the patient to start to think about price, right? I mean, right now there's no incentive. There's very few incentive for the patient to really consider price. This is we'll do. Let's do a little more in healthcare because this is an interesting one. The a lot of people are very skeptical that patients should be able to shop in healthcare. And there's certain things you're not going to shop for. You're not going to have a heart attack and be like, send me to the other one. <laughs> right. Obviously, yeah. there's certain things you can't shop for, and, and certain there's certain things you can't. How, how do you think about like what what's shoppable in healthcare? What's not shoppable? What makes sense there? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right, emergency situation. I don't care. I'm just going to get there as soon as possible. Yeah. But look, you know, you got a knee replacement. Very popular surgery done in mass volume. So why is one hospital twenty five thousand dollars more than the other? And there's no like Lamborghini of knees, right? So it's not that. It is a question of why is that hospital charging more? So I think that's a shoppable thing. The other thing is, and I think this is a huge deal, is when I go buy a car, right? I've got, there's all kinds of rating agencies. I can find out all kinds of information about a car. When I go get a medical procedure, I find out very little about the person who's going to cut into my body. So how do you change that? People like you and I, that we might, we probably know somebody at the hospital, a doctor, yeah. a nurse, we can call somebody. Most people don't. So we passed something in Florida called a, a culture survey, which is done by the people who actually work at the hospital. We got this from Marty McCary um, from John Hopkins, and he written a book called Unaccountable. But he found that these culture surveys where they ask a nurse in a cardiac ward, would you have a cardiac surgery at the hospital where you work? Well, if 65% of those nurses say no, gosh, that, we shouldn't be going there. That's a problem. Right? Yeah. So we did this culture survey, which really began to inform the public about what kind of quality healthcare that they can have. So they're shopping both on price, but also they're shopping based on quality, just like they would a car. That's really cool. And you know, and, and stepping back on governance in general, a lot of what you guys have done has been bipartisan. Some's been more partisan. How do you, how do you think about that with getting things done and working with the other side? Yeah. Look, I think where you when you're trying to solve problems that impact everyday people, right? We talk about healthcare. Right? Republicans have healthcare challenges, Democrats have healthcare challenges, you know, workforce. We just did a huge bill on workforce. Same kind of thing. I think you find in Tallahassee the vast majority of the things that we work on receive pretty significant bipartisan support because they tackle those everyday issues. We're not bogged down in kind of the political nonsense that bogs down, you know, Washington DC and makes it so dysfunctional. So I think we're able to build coalitions because we're not we're not trying to draw a political line. We're identifying a problem and then going about solving it um, in a really uh, systematic and structural way. And, 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 and where does that require courage? I mean, there's a lot of people when you're doing politics that there's special interests, there's people trying to push you to do the things the way you've always done that you, you kind of know are wrong, but they're really powerful. Like, like what instances are there when, when you have to apply courage to this? Yeah, you know, I've found over the years that most of it is just noise. You know, sometimes the noise in the, and around the bubble of government doesn't really reach down to people who actually live in our community, right? You know, something that's wildly intense and there's lots of special so interests. And they'll attack you, but they'll people don't even you. think about it. Yeah, you go home and then nobody asks you about it, right? And you think, well, gosh, I thought this was going to be the issue of the day. I've always kind of said, there's a. You, that's why you need to spend time in your community talking to people because you'll realize that a lot, oftentimes the centers of power and government are so radically disconnected from what impacts everyday people that it's just noise. People are scared, though. I talk to people in legislatures. Yeah. I talked to we had the treasurer for, for recently from yeah. North Carolina. 
Carolina. And, 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 and they are, they're intimidated, they're attacked, they're fighting these bad guys. I, I hear about you know, Disney, for example, is like a huge special interest in Florida. And I, I, you know, my, my little girl, so I think of like the evil Disney, Disney witches coming at, coming at you and coming at these people. And, and they're afraid of them. Like, yeah. the, like the Disney will send Esmeralda to cast a spell on you. Like, what does that look like when they do attack someone? Um, it, it's usually, a, uh, it's very scary in the moment and ends up being a non-event. So I'll give you an example. We were talking about hospitals before. We had a, a huge debate about Medicaid expansion where the Florida House had said, we're not going to expand Medicaid because it doesn't help the most vulnerable in our community. That's not who it helps. We're going to focus on them. And we, we, the hospital associations came out. They spent you know millions and millions of dollars attacking our members. People thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to go home, lose an election. Not a single person lost an election, not a single one. And I, I saw so what we always talk about is care about the policy, do the right thing. Good, good policies, good politics. The special interests aren't as powerful as they think they are. No, no. And it's, it's just more just scaring people. Yeah. It's kind of like punching a bully on the schoolyard, right? Like once you pop them in the nose once, they never come back. And that's kind of how I view the special interest community. At least in Florida, you guys have had the success. They do seem to run things in a lot of other states. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think the difference is we've had so many of these opportunities over the last decade to you know, hammer special interests and say, we don't care. You know, the pharmaceutical companies came in hot and heavy because we wanted to open up markets in Canada to importation of yeah, drugs, right? That's great. They were blasting us on on TV, Wall Street going after us all that's, over the that's place. Gonna, that's a huge deal because you can usually bring down the cost of pharmaceuticals yeah, by going, going to Canada. Um, but but basically they they attacked us and, and then every single member of the Florida House voted for that bill. Wow. After, being so after they attacked you, everyone just went and did it. Yeah, I kind of say it's like a Viking shield wall, right? If you attack us when we're doing something right, we're going to close ranks. The Democrats and Republicans. Everybody. That's such an inspiring story. It's not the kind of thing you hear about in the press. No, That's I, really cool. Yeah, and I think it was kind of, we told them that was going to happen. We say, hey, look, thanks for making our job so easy. Uh, because now that you've done this, the way that you've done it, now we're not going to just win. We're going to win by several touchdowns. I love it. That's really great. Tell me a little bit about working with Governor DeSantis. Some people people are very curious about him right now. Always, you guys seem to agree on a lot, but not everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we agree on a lot. I think that the thing that I've been most impressed with with the governor is that he's very hands on. Like he cares about the details. You you've met him. You've talked to him. He's a very smart guy. You know, he gets into the weeds. You can have a conversation back and forth with him about details um, and and figure out where the best place is to land. And I've I've enjoyed being able to have that back and forth with him. Are you able to say anything you disagree with him about, or is that something? you try to avoid um and i'm trying to think of something off the top of my head i'm sure we've disagreed with things over the last you know six months but to be honest with you it's one of those things where it's always it's always you know been able to be worked out that's cool let's uh let's go to a couple other of the issues you guys have worked on yeah um, tell me about higher education you guys you guys got a lot done in higher education in the last last couple of sessions what, what what kind of stuff have you been working on yeah so i think the first thing is um acknowledging that not everybody should go to college not everybody should go to get a four-year degree. They might right? need a vocational degree. Might be a vocational degree, else. right? And I, and I should talk about this in the context of higher ed because I think it's wildly mm-hmm. important. And I think that also, as political leaders, we've said that for a decade, but really haven't done anything to make it real. Like we said, oh yeah, you know, you don't have to go to college to be successful or get the American dream, but we haven't changed any of the incentive structures to do that. So you're much better off, right, to take your government subsidy and go to a four-year degree than you are to go get a technical education, even though- Given the, the subsidy. Yeah, given the subsidy. But at the end of the day, your your nationally recognized industry certification may end up giving you a better career path. Yeah. So we did a bill, uh, House Bill 1507 uh, last year, which is the most sweeping re- reorganization of a workforce system and higher education system of anywhere in the country. And really was based on the principle that we believe in meaningful work, whether that is through a four-year institution where you get a degree or whether it's through a nationally recognized industry certification. So for the first time in our state's history, just like we do in K-12, we are measuring success based on 
who comes in the door to get a nationally recognized industry certification everywhere to a higher education. And you want to see how they do with their career afterwards as well. Absolutely, because everybody's different, right? And what we've realized, you know, Todd Rose from Populous has done some really good studies on this, but we realized that people don't believe anymore that getting a four-year degree is part of the American dream. It doesn't, they, doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, right? And and that they can get that by, you know, by getting a, a trade, by working in, you know, whether it's mechanics or, or, or welding or what have you. And we need to make that easier. We also need to make it easier for people to find a job. I think we forget mm. how hard it is. When you first people, get going. Yeah. yeah, like how are you going to navigate this? You know, we realize that everybody's doing it, right? The Department of Education, children and family. It might as well be nobody doing it because people don't know where to go. So we changed all that. We called it an opportunity hub. So regardless of what door you come in through, right, through the portal, you're all going to go to the same place. You're going to get career counseling. You're going to get paired up with a job to give you meaningful work and a meaningful career. And so in Texas, of course, we talk about they did the technical school incentives and all of a sudden they had to teach skills that mattered and salaries went way up. Are you doing a little bit of that too with vocational schools? Is there, is there some incentive where they get funding based on the success? Yeah, absolutely. But also we, we made it more like a business, right? So, so now if you go to a state college in Florida, they have to offer at least three certifications or technical degrees where they say, if you come and you get this certificate and you, you are not working in that field in six months, we'll give you your money back. It is a money back That's guarantee cool. from government that if you come here to get this, you'll get a job. And what's cool about it is, look, every part of Florida, as you know, is a very diverse place. North Florida is nothing like South Florida. So we basically said, you guys pick the three. But pick why, choose wisely because whatever three you choose has to match your region so that people can get a job. Otherwise, you're giving people their money back. Well, is, is that hurt them or just the government's giving the money back? Like, what's the consequence of the person running the school? Yeah, they're, they're losing the money, right? So, like, we have to acknowledge, right, that the incentive structure is the same for these colleges as it is for private business. They want the revenue based on educating the person. So, Got if it. we threaten to say, hey, listen, you'll have to part with that revenue those carrots begin to align. All of a sudden they start thinking really carefully, yeah. what skills are we teaching? Yeah, and they've really leaned into it like in a really, really big way. That's awesome. Let's talk about the other part of education. Florida's famous for having done a lot of things differently in K to 12. Yeah. Uh, you guys obviously care a lot about choice. What's, what's happening there? A lot. So this past session, we passed a school choice bill's most massive expansion of school choice in the history of the United States of America. So people are going to be watching to see what happens in Florida. They, they really are. And I and look, and just to show you, because I know the school choice fights, whether it's, you know, here in Texas or other parts of the country, are receive a lot of attention. The pressure you mentioned, right? Teachers, unions, teachers, people get upset. The reality is if you just focus on the kids and not the adults in the system. It's amazing what you can do. When we passed this bill, there's an extra one, one and a half million kids who qualify for school choice who didn't qualify before. Wow. Um, it really is it really is stunning. I, I think the other thing, the other message there in the political debates over school choice is that I remember my first school choice bill that I filed. I was a freshman house member and it was like two and a half, two hours of debate. And I realized at the end of the debate, the people who were arguing against the bill had never mentioned children in the debate. Yeah. Not one time. They wow. mentioned adults. They mentioned bus routes. They mentioned all kinds of things, none of which had to do with kids. So if you stay focused on kids and the idea that if we empower parents with the ability to make the best choice for their children, you will open up a thriving education marketplace. And what you're seeing now in Florida is a thriving, I think, thriving public schools who are now competing with charter schools and, and private so schools. So it's forcing the public schools to get better to compete, basically. 100%. They're, look, they're sending letters to families to say, hey, I know your kid goes to this school, but let me tell you about why we're the best kept secret. That's what I want. I want them That's to great. compete for the- Because for, that gets them funding. So all of a sudden they care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Money follows the kid. 
That, and, and what kind of reforms have you seen? Like, what are the schools doing differently in order yeah. to attract the kids? I think they're being more responsive to the parents and the needs of the kids. So, for example, we have a, a, a school locally called Lift Academy in Pinellas County, where I'm, where I'm from, which was which is designed specifically for kids who have autism, because the families uh, who, who had sent their kids to the public school didn't feel like they were getting a tailored mm-hmm. education to help their children. So they started the school. Well, now the school district is robustly in that space and trying to make sure that they have the services you know, appropriate for those kids. So I think that you're seeing them really have to step up and compete because the incentives are That's there. awesome. It's up in the game. Everyone's trying to find what new yeah. ways to offer things. What's happening with this? There's the whole big debate I have to mention right now with Virginia and everything with critical race theory yeah. and making, making kids feel bad about their race and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Like, is this, does this change how that's taught differently in these schools? Because schools are afraid to be too extreme to lose kids or, or what happens? Certainly, I would think that a lot of them would be in Florida because of the strong position that I've staked out, the governor, the Senate president have staked out on it. And we're going to be very aggressive. Um, on that front. But I do think that we have to acknowledge that we have a massive problem on our hands, you know, because we oftentimes don't know what books are in the library or what is being said in class. Uh, And we may never know unless our child comes home and tells us about it. So I think that's a real world problem. One of the ways we tried to combat that this past year is we passed a a sweeping parents' bill of rights, right? To Mm -hmm. make sure that parents have the, they they understand that they have the right to get the entire curriculum. So they can know what their their kids being taught. We have to be active parents. Like we have to be active parents, but we have to have the rights to make sure that we know that we can come in and say, give me the curriculum that is gonna be taught to my child because I might not be okay with what is being conveyed to them. How, how should we think about that? Should they be taught, here's what the 1619 people think and here's what 1776 people think and you know, here's, here's what, should they have both views or maybe are they too young to be hearing some of these things? Like how should we be thinking about that? Look, I, I think, a, you know, telling a, a second grader about that is, is, you know, obscene, right, and abhorrent. I think when you're talking about K through five in particular, we need core values of what unites us as Americans, right? You know, you stand up, you do the Pledge of Allegiance, you talk about the founding fathers, you talk about the aspiration of what Young people should be proud of their country and then, and then we should yes. confront these things later. On. Yeah. And I want to tell you about, um, so we, we figured out like, how do we do that? Right. Cause we put in laws, you know, teach the declaration of independence, teach the constitution. And we did that and we didn't see a difference. Right. I think one of the problems is, is that kids don't get to interact with people who have seen the other side of being in a totalitarian regime, being in a communist country. That seems like a really good thing to try to yeah. expose them to. So we, we rolled out this program last year we passed called portraits and patriotism. And what it does is it's modeled off of the Holocaust Museum, uh, where they did the interviews with Holocaust survivors about what it was like to be in concentration camps. And then they have this, this program that essentially holograms these people and allows kids in the class to virtually interview them. So, so, you're, so you're talking to people who are in the Soviet Union or yeah. Venezuela or yeah. something like that. So now they get to do that with people who chose the United States of all the places in the world as their home to tell them about what it was truly like to live in a totalitarian regime, why they love freedom so much. That's great. And, you, and you've chosen people from multiple different backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. Vietnam or because I think if places. they hear it from those people, that's cool. that story will stick with them. And I think that becomes our shared American value. That's amazing. Is that something you can make available to other states? It seems like a lot of people are going to be interested in this one. Absolutely. Look, that's you know the one thing that the Holocaust Museum has done in this, in, in, to try to combat the fact that people are you know Holocaust deniers and people, you know, don't, a lack of knowledge about the Holocaust has gone down. So we're trying to do the same about our shared American value. And the idea would be to do it really well in Florida and then allow people to replicate Is there it. a site people can go check out? about that yet? It's it's underway now. So we just Go passed ahead. it this last session. The governor signed the budget uh, and the bills during the summer. Um, it got paid for, and now we're in the implementation phase. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited, excited to see that. Let's go to a couple other areas. Public safety is a big one. I come from San Francisco, where I was just furious on, uh, earlier. There's a, you know, last week, there was a two-year-old that was shot yeah. on the plate in Fremont, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And there's these gangs roving around who are stealing 
stuff because it's, they're not punished anymore for stealing because of the crazy DAs and stuff. So there's there's this big new issue with public safety. And I, I, I'm personally a fan of certain types of criminal justice reform where we're, sure. we're making things better and less recidivism, but I'm very much against putting criminals on the streets. How, how, how are you approaching public safety? How are you guys thinking of it? Look, first, I think it's, a, it's part to talk about your governing philosophy, right, when it comes to public safety. I believe the reason government was created was specifically for this, right? We agree that we were gonna part with some of our individual liberties because we wanted to be protected. We want there to be a justice system where we can redress our grievances with, with each other. So I, I believe when the government fails, to police in their community, when the government fails to protect they their citizens. They feel their core duty. Obviously. That's it, your core duty. What's yeah. the point of the rest of it? Everything yeah. else is kind of like you know wallpaper at that point. Yeah. So I think it's a number one priority, which is why we passed House Bill 1 last year to deal with you know rioting uh, and combating rioting in our community, because we wanted to send a message to the rest of the country, to, to your Californias, your Oregons, don't come here. And, and engage in that kind of conduct because we, we won't be we won't tolerate you know destruction of property Molotov cocktails through windows, but I believe that we need to be strong on people who are violent criminals. I believe that the justice system can be done smartly. I think that you can use the power of data to make the right decision. Um, what's, the, what's the right decision mean? So here's so a couple years ago we put together um, a data transparency bill. So the right decision, in my opinion, is using using data, using real information, not anecdote, not stories, to to make the choice as to how we should treat an individual offender, right? So if an individual, you know, people will say, um, well, we're incarcerating, you know, all the people we incarcerate are low-level drug offenders. In the state of Florida, that's not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Only 14% of the people in state prison in, in Florida are there for drugs. Even as a prosecutor, are you against incarcerating someone who's just only made their first mistake with drugs or something? Or how do you think about that? I would say that um, people who say that that happens, at least in the state of Florida, I can't say for other states, is totally made up. It's not that doesn't happen. You know, it's like you, I always say you have to work really hard, really hard to get to prison. You know, if somebody who's who's caught with a, you know, some cocaine, that person doesn't like wake up the next day and is in state prison. That doesn't happen ever. The only time it would is if they violated probation so many times that there wasn't anything left to do with them. So there's a lot of untruths and mischaracterizations in the conversation about criminal justice. And I think the way you deal with that is to have this robust data transparency. We will have the most robust collection and public reporting of data transparency and criminal justice of any that's state. In America. So you can measure everything that's yeah. happening, measure recidivism, and you could just then you could try programs and see what programs work and don't work. Yeah, absolutely. And let's yeah. if we're gonna have this debate as to what the right the right decision is, right? Let's do it on the same sheet of music. So at least we're talking about the same set of collective Totally, facts. totally. We're, we're big behind the nonprofit recidivism. Yeah, we're talking about which this as well. And it sounds, I think it's really important. It's nonpartisan to get the data. Yeah. Then we could try things. There is an interesting thing. I think there's a far left thing going around hiring DAs who don't prosecute people because they say we're sending them to jail for too long. Like, like how, how do you think about that? Is there's a huge responsibility? You're a prosecutor. You're putting someone away for 30 years. Yeah. You, you probably, I and mean, there's a lot of prosecutors supposedly that try to put them away even when they're not guilty because it's their job. Like, like, how do you think about the morals around that type of thing? Yeah. Look, I mean, if you, if, if that people are doing that, right. If somebody's trying to put someone in prison because they want a conviction, um, yeah. that is abhorrent. It's criminal in my mind. So a prosecutor uh, has a moral duty not to try to prosecute once they realize they're innocent. Yeah. Look, they used to call prosecutors, which I preferred the title, right? Ministers of justice, right? Because if you're truly a minister of justice, it's not about, it's not a, about a conviction. It's about yeah. what's the right thing to do here. Yeah. And you know, when I was, when I always kind of said the, the worst prosecutors I ever met were the ones who said no all the time. The next worst were the people who said yes all the time, right? It is a dynamic uh, job that requires someone to make an individual decision based on the, the facts of that particular case. So what are, what are the nonpartisan versus partisan issues on this? Because you're able to pass the use of force reporting with 
unanimous support. Everyone, everyone wants to report on that. What are the ones you're fighting about? I'm curious. Like, like what's, what, where do you get along versus where do you fight on these? You know, I, I always ask people, um, they say, you know, how do you feel about criminal justice reform? I said, I don't know. It depends which reform you're talking about, right? Like we have to talk about it in, in specifics. There is a, a segment of reformers who believe that we incarcerate violent criminals for too long. That, there's a real movement on that. And I am, I am not a fan. Um, I, don't, I don't support that. I think if that- they're, If they're violent, you gotta incarcerate them. Yeah, the, the incarceration of violent criminals, uh, we know that a small segment of the population that is violent does a disproportionate number of those kinds of crimes, right? So yep. those folks need to go to prison. And, and they're very likely to recommit if you let them out quickly. E extremely likely, right? So I think that you know, those incarcerations are important. I also think there's a move in Florida, we have an 85% law that says, you know, you have to do 85% of your sentence. Uh, and really that was a truth in sentencing because people used to do you know, 30% of their sentence. Which is a fake sentence. Um, there are people who want to undo that, and uh, and I don't support that. I believe that when we tell victims when someone goes to prison, they should have some reassurance that they're going to at least do 85% of their sentence. That makes sense. Let's shift over to the to the economy. Texas and Florida, I guess, are the two states growing the fastest right now. People yeah. coming into the most job creation. How do we how do we make sure we have a thriving middle class in Florida in five ten years? And what what, what are the lessons people can learn from Florida? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. You know, so we talked about the uh, the workforce bill that we passed, where it's you know we're talking about you know obviously you have your high high end tech jobs that are coming to the Tampa Bay area or to Miami, which is now a huge tech center. But we also need the individuals around that who are um, who are going to be support that industry who might not not gone to a four-year university. Now you're seeing big tech companies like Google and others who are not necessarily hiring people who went to a four-year university if they've got the skill set. Well, also, I've, I've heard like every tech job creates like four or five jobs nearby, no, right? No question, right? Yeah. But then there also becomes, okay, so if I get a job that's a great middle-class job at a new tech company, where are my kids going to go to school? So do I have to send them to a private school that's really expensive? That's my only option, in which case now I've fallen out of the middle class. So school choice is, school a big, choice is, is a about, huge deal. about helping middle class. 100%. Well. Yeah. You know, we've expanded, you know, we have a corporate tax credit scholarship um, in Florida, um, you know, for mostly for poor kids to allow them to go to private schools. We've expanded that. We've continued to expand that further into the middle class so that middle class families don't have to decide between sending their kids to a school that's best for them and falling out of the middle class. That's awesome. What, what, what are, what are the other issues that have driven growth in the, in the economy in Florida? Look, I think um, our, our business climate, the fact that we have no state income tax, uh, the fact that we welcome business, the fact that when you come there as a business owner, uh, you know, Florida used to be the place that was like the carrot at the end of the life well lived, right? Hey, great job. You now get to retire to Florida. That's mm. not the case anymore. People, we, are, people are coming. Yeah, we, we lead the nation in domestic migration. And a lot of that is because now people are moving their businesses here. They're growing their families here. They know they have school options. They know that our state university system, you know, um, is ranked U.S. News and World Report as number one in the nation in, in large part because of its affordability for students. Well, what's the, what's the biggest threat then to, to all this? To, to Florida? Yeah. Um, look, I think uh, I think we're always, you know, what, one election away from a complete and utter reversal. Um, I believe, look, 50,000 votes was the difference between Ron DeSantis being governor of Florida and not. Had he not been governor of Florida, and even if we had a Republican legislature as a backstop, you know, we would have been much more like New York or California during the pandemic than Florida. The pandemic has been terrible for lots of reasons, right? People have gotten sick, people have died, it's hurting the economy. For Florida, I believe that one of the you know, silver linings of the pandemic has been the rest of the country now knows what we knew all along which is that Florida is the best kept secret in the, and now it's not a secret anymore, but it was the best kept secret in the country. And that's why people are flocking here.
One of the areas you're focused on in terms of risk is is this risk assessment and security for Florida. I, yeah. I noticed you're, you're putting a lot of work into that. Yeah, t t tell us a little bit what you're doing there. Um, well, we're taking that one from the private sector, right? Um, you know, we, here we look at companies who've said, okay, what's our risks as a company? Mm. Um, let's get, let's bring in somebody to tell us what our risks are. So we brought in Willis Towers Watson, you know, obviously a globally known risk assessor. And we said, we want to know what are our vulnerabilities as a state? What are our biggest risks? And I think what's interesting about that from a cultural standpoint is we don't do that as politicians usually, right? It is driven by what was in the news last night, what's the fire of the moment. But if we were to step back and say, what is Florida gonna look like in 30 years? Tell us what my risks are. So right now they are doing, I think the first ever statewide risk assessment where they're trying to identify what are our risks. And I think that based on what I've seen so far and the, and the, you know, the, ver the jury's still out, but I believe that you're going to see massive risks in cybersecurity. I think you're going to see massive risks in coastal flooding, both of which are two issues that we looked at last year and, and had some significant movement on. The flooding is tied to the hurricanes? Yeah, part of it's hurricanes. Part of it is, um, you know, obviously the, the flooding on the coast that has gotten, you know, considerably worse over time, which now is, you know, hurting people's home values, hurting their insurance rates. Are there a way to build giant dikes or is it so, so big that it's hard? What can you do? No, I think, I think you can do Look, some of it's, uh, you know, hey, construction of a seawall, right? Some yeah. of it is has to do with drainage and sewage and, and dealing with that issue. But we also have a clean water problem that's created by that. So it's a multifaceted system. Last year, we did um, a resiliency bill, which put you know a billion dollars in for things like coastal infrastructure. So that whatever the challenge of the community is, Tampa Bay, for example, number one in the nation at risk of storm surge. How do we plan for that? What's the best way? Give us a plan, and then let's you know construct make sure, it. Make sure, make sure you get guys like Elon Musk building things for you instead of uh, right. instead of some of the guys from the '80s building who built those buildings. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Uh, you know, so we started American Optimist obviously to push back against the wave of pessimism and division that's sweeping things. What should give people hope from your experience that good governance is possible and that our country's headed the right way? Um, I'll do, uh, I'll give you two that are kind of hard, hard optimism and science. And then one I think is social. Um, so the two in science are, I think, and there's been a podcast that you did previously on this of what's happening in, um, you know, cellular research as, as, as it relates to attacking diseases, right? What I kind of think of as like the seal team six of cells to come mm -hmm. in and, you know, eliminate cancer. Like, I think we're on the cutting edge of that. And I think that's going to be huge for us um, in the next decade. I also think that the, the space program, you know, we're from Florida. So, you know, you've seen what, you know, SpaceX can do and Blue Origin. I think one of the one of the worst things that America ever did was step back from the space program. I think it, it killed innovation in a way that um, we would have you know accelerated considerably more had we continued it. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about what's happening in this in space. I think it's you know the uh, the uh, the opportunities there are literally endless and infinite, and I think that that's going to be huge for for Florida and huge for the country. And then I think socially, what I would say is um, I have got to believe that there is going to be a backlash from this world that we are living in now where we're on Facebook and Twitter and not talking to each other anymore like you and I are talking to each other now and that there is going to be a social backlash where people realize like this is this is terrible for the country this is terrible for me and my family what i really need to do is be at the ball field or what i really need to do is be at you know church on sunday or the PTA meeting where so there's actual humans so you're, so you're not a, you're not a fan of the metaverse necessarily you should be living in the real world here no not yet it's, i like to say you have like the the twitter you know roaming robes pierres that are running around lopping people's heads off on twitter like that's nonsense. It, it's a bunch of noise. It's not the real world. And my hope socially for us as a country and as a society is that there's going to be a huge backlash and people are actually going to want to talk to each other. And what would you say to people who are thinking about getting involved in politics? This is, are you you're happy you made this choice? Is it like, like what kind of person do you have to be to, to wade in and be a leader in politics as, you, as you've been? Um, I, I think you certainly have to have... Um, you know, thick skin, but I would also say get involved in an area where you can make a difference, 
like truly make a difference. I mean, I look at Washington right now and I think to myself, what do you do there? You know, there's nothing that's happening that's that's good. Um, people are you know screaming at each other. Where where the real experiment yeah. in 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 our republic is is in our state governments, yeah. and that's where I feel like people can make the most difference. If you work hard, play by the rules, you know, tr- try to be bold, you're going to be able to accomplish things like we have in Florida. So that would be my. That's where you're going to teach the nation how things work. That, that that's our focus at Cicero, as you know, is going yeah. to state levels and actually treating it like the laboratory of democracy and we're partnering with innovators like you guys. Yeah, I think that's the difference between um, people who are looking at bold solutions. Like, so take Cicero, for example, who's actually coming to the states and saying, look, we're not going to bother trying to pitch this to the federal government. Number one, it's not their lane. And number two, they're going to be bad at it, even if they tried. Where we really need is a success story, whether that's in Florida or Texas, to be able to show the nation that this can happen. A lot of people are frustrated by government, but I love your positive energy and the innovation you guys are putting out. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. There's going to be more to come here in Florida.